the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering today's program. Today in the second hour, we're going to talk with um, Tony Ranke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It is a fascinating book. He develops a theology of technology, uh, cites scriptures that help us understand the, the value of technology, God's sovereignty over it all, and what to expect moving forward. That's coming up in the second hour. One of the most interesting books I've read in a long time, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, again, coming up in the second hour of today's program. And the book, by the way, is published by Crossway if you want to check it out. Well, as you know, the Oregon legislature is in session. At the end of the day, this is on the 7th, that was a couple of days ago, Senate Bill 1553 and House Bill 4042 died in committee without receiving a hearing. These were pro-life bills sponsored by Senator um, Lenticum of Klamath Falls, Representative Lewis of Silverton, Representative Stark of Grants Pass and other pro-life lawmakers. The bills would have established protection for mothers and infants. Uh, The executive director of Oregon Right to Life says that I'm disappointed in but not surprised by the leadership of the House and the Senate. She uh, says their allegiance to the abortion industry doesn't allow them to even consider the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, which has broad support among Oregonians. Well, in Senate Bill 1553, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, it would have established a legal requirement to provide life-saving care for infants that survived an attempted abortion. In the House, House Bill 4042 would have required abortion practitioners to inform women about abortion pill reversal treatments at least 24 hours before dispensing uh, the drug commonly used in chemical abortions, which under the current administration are much more readily available. A poll in 2021 showed that 78 percent of Oregonians support legal requirements to provide life-saving medical care to infants who are born alive after an attempted abortion. Lois Anderson went on to say, unfortunately, it seems their pro-abortion allegiance comes before the beliefs of the vast majority of Oregonians. Again, not surprising, as she pointed out, these two pieces of legislation died in committee. Neither were given a hearing. Well, Democrats in charge of the Washington legislature are proposing a new tax on gasoline and diesel fuel destined for Oregon, Idaho and Alaska to particularly... um, Uh, single out and pay for a cornucopia of highway, transit, rail, bike trail, and ferry construction across Washington state. The exported fuel tax was included in a transportation spending and revenue package. It was unveiled on Tuesday in Olympia. Washington state lawmakers have leverage due to the fact there is no oil production or refinery in Oregon or Idaho and just one small refinery in oil-rich Alaska. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, more than 90 percent of the gasoline and diesel Oregon drivers use come from comes rather from refineries along Puget Sound. 
We bear the brunt for environmental impacts that are created by having the refineries here in the state. That's a quote from the Washington House Transportation Committee Chair Jake Fay, a Democrat out of uh, Tacoma, uh, speaking about the uh, reasoning behind the new tax. In terms of fairness, I think it's only appropriate since we produce the fuels for their use that they support our climate activities and our overall activities in the package. Well, the proposed uh, export fuel tax Uh, The rate would be six cents per gallon at the wholesale level, would take effect next February. That's 2023. Lawmakers staff estimated that the new tax would bring in about two billion dollars over the next 16 years, with the lion's share of that coming from levies on gasoline and diesel delivered to Oregon. Oregon State Senator Lee Beyer, a Democrat and co-chair of the state's Joint Transportation Committee, said that he'd heard Washington was considering floating an export tax. Tax, rather, he had questions about the constitutionality of the proposal and supposes that if it's enacted, Oregon will look at ways to retaliate, oppose or otherwise look into. The Oregon Trucking Associations and Oregon's Fuel Association, a gas station and distributor group, had similarly dubious reactions to the proposed uh, levy. Buyer has uh, worked extensively with Washington lawmakers over the years as the two states look to forge an agreement on the new bridge over the Columbia River, which I doubt in my lifetime will ever materialize. That's the I-5 bridge. Asked whether the tax proposal could sour the ongoing discussion, Buyer says, I don't want to jump to any conclusions on that. Washington Senate Transportation Committee Chair Marco Lias uh, from um, Mucleteo said there is precedent for a state to charge the uh, export fuel tax that targets a neighboring state's drivers. Florida, Texas, and Tennessee, they have taxes that they apply to exported fuel from their in-state refineries. Uh, Washington will not be the first to consider this as a revenue tool. Well, if approved by the full Washington state legislature, the export tax would apply to vehicle fuels piped or shipped from Washington to any other U.S. state with a lower gas tax, uh, which on a practical basis means it would largely fall on Oregonians and to a much lesser degree on northern Idaho and Alaskans. California receives gasoline by barge from Washington, but the Golden State's drivers would be spared because they're already highly taxed. For a change, there is no gas tax uh, increase on Washington drivers in the multifaceted transportation spending blueprint, but there are an assortment of license fee hikes. The total $16 billion 16-year package also dips into the state operating budget surplus of $2 billion and deploys federal infrastructure money and future carbon emissions fees, including on Washington's five major refineries. Republicans in the state legislature, again in Washington, said that they were disappointed to be excluded from the closed-door meetings at which the package was assembled. One state lawmaker from Vancouver argued turnabout is fair play when it comes to export fuel tax. Democratic State Representative Sharon Wiley represents tens of thousands of commuters who live in Washington but have Oregon taxes withheld from their paychecks because they work at jobs in the Portland area. My people pay 10 percent Oregon income tax if they don't have a job on my side of the river. Well, the single biggest highway construction project ticketed for funding in the proposed new transportation package is one billion dollars for Washington's share of the cost to replace the old and seismically vulnerable I-5 bridge over the Columbia River between Portland and Vancouver. The spending blueprint also includes a contribution toward a better bridge over the Columbia at Hood River. Uh, legis- uh, legislators, um, legislative leaders, rather, in Olympia said that 
There was no linkage between the export fuel tax and the sums dedicated to improved interstate bridges, which are fewer. Legislative consideration of the full package, dubbed Move Ahead Washington by its drafters, began today uh, in that committee. The 2022 session of the Washington legislature is scheduled to wrap up by the 10th of March. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to continue looking at some of the day's news. Also coming up in the second hour, Tony Ranke, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Really fascinating book, uh, establishing a a, uh, theology of technology. That's coming up in our second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, 100 Republican members of Congress sent President Biden a letter on Thursday calling for fentanyl to be permanently labeled a Schedule One substance. Wisconsin Representative Byron Style, a Republican, led a letter that um, with over half of the House GOP caucus to the president calling on the president to continue his support of cementing fentanyl highly illegal status under the Controlled Substance Act. Fentanyl kills more people age 18 to 45 than car accidents, suicide or COVID-19. The representative uh, said in his digital email statement, we cannot stand by and watch as Americans are being killed by the flood of fentanyl related substances coming into our country. It is past time for the president to take seriously the need to secure our border and make permanent fentanyl related substance schedule one classification. He went on to say, well, fentanyl is a deadly synthetic opioid. It's ravaging American communities. It's hitting teens and young adults the hardest. It is the current leading cause of overdose death in the U.S. Drug overdoses claim more American lives every year than ever before. The lawmakers wrote in their letter exclusively to the president, fentanyl and fentanyl related substances are fueled the are fueling rather the overdose epidemic, killing 64,178 Americans between May of 2020 and April of 2021 and making up 64 percent of total U.S. overdose deaths. The lawmakers also noted that fentanyl's potency, which blows both heroin and morphine out of the water exponentially, and pointed out China has been the principal source of the precursor agents from which fentanyl is produced. They also urged the president and the administration to take immediate action to stem the fentanyl scourge coming from China and across our southern border. Fentanyl is also one of the most common illegal substances confiscated from illegal immigrants crossing the southern border, with the lawmakers writing that U.S. Customs and Border Protection report a 1,066% increase in fentanyl seized at eight southern Texas ports during fiscal 2021. While the Republicans wrote that the flood of fentanyl-related substances pouring across our border and the looming February 18th expiration deadline on the fentanyl-related substances current Schedule 1 classification raises grave concern for our communities and called on the president to continue to support making fentanyl-related substances Schedule 1 classification permanent. So the dispute isn't over whether or not it should be a Schedule 1 classification of um, substance, but whether or not it should be made permanent. We again urge you to take immediate and decisive action to protect American communities from this deadly drug, they wrote. We stand ready to assist in this important mission. Well, according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration website, Schedule 1 drugs, substances, or chemicals are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. 
This puts the synthetic opioid at the same level as uh, the illegality of heroin, acid, and peyote, but its scheduling comes with a sunset that goes down on the 18th of this month. The House is considering a bill to extend the classification until May, excuse me, March the 11th of this year, less than a month later. The letter-wide support saw several high-profile signatories, including GOP Doctors Caucus members, Representatives Brad Winstrup of Ohio and Marionette Miller Meeks of Ohio. The White House hasn't yet responded, but the expectation is that it will respond favorably. Major technology companies and social media platforms have removed, suppressed, or flagged the accounts of more than 800 prominent individuals and organizations, including medical doctors for COVID-19 misinformation, according to a new study from the Media Research Center. Now, the study focused on acts of censorship on major social media platforms and online services, including Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google Ads, and TikTok. Instances of censorship included Facebook's decision to flag the British Medical Journal with a fact check and missing context label, reducing the visibility of a post for a study delving into data integrity issues with the Pfizer vaccine clinical trial. Facebook also deleted the page of the Great Barrington Declaration, an open letter led by dozens of medical professionals, including Dr. J. Bhattachari, a Stanford epidemiologist, and Martin Kulldorff, a former employee of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which advocated for less restrictive measures to address the dangers of COVID-19. Big Tet set up uh, systems where you can't disagree with the science, in quotes, even though that's the forbidden, uh, the foundation, rather, of the scientific method. Now, that's an important point. You can't disagree with the science, even though the foundation of the scientific method is to do just that, the back and forth. That's a quote from Dan Gaynor, MRC's vice president of Free Speech America. Uh, If doctors and academic journals can't debate publicly, then it's not science at all. It's religion. Well, Big Tech also scrubbed podcast host Joe Rogan's interviews with scientist Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Robert Malone, the latter of whom was instrumental in producing mRNA technology. So these are not uninformed non-medical individuals. Twitter banned Malone for it from its platform permanently in late December over the virologist tweets questioning the efficacy and safety of the COVID-19 vaccine. We tallied 32 different doctors who were censored, including mRNA vaccine innovator Dr. Robert Malone, Gaynor said. Censoring views of credentialed Uh, individuals, uh, experts, doesn't ensure confidence in vaccines. It undermines faith in government COVID-19 strategies. Well, in addition to medical doctors, the study examined instances in which members of Congress were censored by tech platforms. These include an incident last August in which YouTube suspended Senator Rand Paul for posting a video arguing that cloth masks are not effective against the coronavirus, a view later echoed by many prominent medical commentators, including the CDC. It's embraced now, but rejected then. Twitter also flagged a tweet from Representative Thomas Massey, a Republican from Kentucky, in which he wrote, Studies show those with natural immunity from a prior infection are much less likely to contract and spread COVID than those who only have vaccine-induced immunity. The study also examined big tech censorship of prominent media personalities such as Rogan, Tucker Carlson, and Dan Bongino. And by the way, that um, statement on Twitter is now embraced as truth by those who censored um, the uh, details then. Well, in a turnaround, Democrats across the country are scrambling to reverse course on COVID-19 restrictions as this year's midterm elections loom. 
Turkey's support of Ukraine in the face of a possible invasion by Russia, despite recent troubles with Europe, highlights Germany's hesitancy as tensions remain high. The big question, will Russia or will they not invade the country? The set of circumstances that reportedly killed popular comedian and TV actor Bob Saget last month are not uncommon. According to health officials, approximately 166 Americans died from traumatic brain injury related events each day, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. ESPN and Northwestern University, they've remained silent after J.A. Anden, a professor at the school's medal school of journalism, compared ongoing uh, human rights abuses committed by China to election reform efforts in the U.S. during an appearance on the Disney-owned network. In a Twitter storm, the Georgetown University Law Center lecturer at the center of a cancel culture controversy over a Twitter message hopes the situation can help improve the fraught state of American political discord. Ilya Shapiro, who's uh, under investigation after a critical tweet about President Biden's pledge to choose a black woman from the Supreme Court, which, by the way, was very poorly written, told Fox News Digital that public debate is clearly broken in the United States. As uh, truckers head south, or are they heading south? The Department of Homeland Security is aiming to get ahead of a planned demonstration here in the U.S., tracking reports of a potential convoy with several Canadian truck protests against COVID mandates that are falling around the country. Well, a test for the president, nearly 40 Republican lawmakers are calling on the president, now 79, to take a cognitive test following the example set by his predecessor, former President Donald Trump, who was also urged by then-Democrats to do the same. Rebecca Grant uh, warns that we shouldn't write off Kiev, but if Vladimir Putin attacks any day under cover of war games in Belarus starting this week, President Biden will have an instant decision to make. Now, presumably, he's already thought through his options and is prepared to make that decision should the time come. Pete Sessions reminds the Biden administration and Democrats have waged war on the American oil and gas industry, all while Russia expands its oil and gas footprint around the world. President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, stopped leasing on federal lands and unleashed regulations that have destroyed at least 10,000 pretty good paying oil and gas jobs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder coming up in our second hour, Tony Ranke, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Dr. Ben Carson says that while Black History Month is upon us, some will attempt to use it as a tool to push divisive agendas But we must avoid such ideologies and remain focused on what unites us as a nation. Dr. Ben Carson. Isaac Morehouse says it turns out the story most young people have been told about the value of college degrees on the job market isn't true. And it's less true every day. He wrote a whole article on it. Inflation continues to grow. The newest inflation data is expected to show another jaw dropping figure as the price for a bevy of everyday consumer goods soared even higher. While touting lower prescription costs, the president will visit Culpeper, Virginia, and is expected to call attention to the unacceptable cost of medications in the U.S. Meanwhile, Alec Baldwin's quick return to work might have moviegoers questioning his sincerity about the rust shooting that left him saying he might never act again, according to an industry expert. Well, according to NPR, you are insensitive if you use the wrong thumbs up emoji. 
Now, some white people may stick with the yellow emoji because they don't want to assert their privilege by adding a light-skinned emoji to the text or to take advantage of something that was created to represent diversity in their absurd story. Well, from hot air, this NPR meditation on proper progressive etiquette when communicating like a four-year-old reminds us that the stakes are never so low that one can afford to stop thinking about race. The thumbs-up symbol that you... uh, um, absent-mindedly texted to a colleague to signal assent to whatever insane thing they just said may mean nothing to you, but may be a microaggression to them. Eric Erickson weighs in, having academics insist you pick a race for your emoji is rather racist. NPR is prompting and promoting this racism and can't even be bothered to investigate Hunter Biden. Rod um, Dreyer points out, what's the point of NPR anymore? It's national, if by national you mean East and West Coast liberal arts colleges. Hmm. Well, the White House now denies the uh, crack pipe story. Jen Psaki now denies uh, that the crack pipes are part of the kit they plan to pass out to underserved populations. Look at the original story, says otherwise, but let's hope she's right. Michael Knoll says if no pipes will be put in the safe smoking kits, then how are they safe smoking kits? From Congressman Mike Rogers, more than a million Americans have died from drug overdoses. Joe Biden's plan, free crack pipes. Well, we'll see if that ends up being the truth. From the Babylon Bee, Biden announces new program to give white suburban women free wine glasses. Hmm. President Biden is promising big tax dollars to unions, the same unions that poured member dollars into his campaign. From the story, a bias toward unions is awarding contracts would uh, run Uh, Run up against federal law. Companies have a First Amendment right to resist organization and agencies can't hold that stance against them when uh, distributing funds. A federal judge in 2016 upheld this standard to block an executive order by President Obama, which would have required federal uh, grantees to dissolve any alleged labor violations publicly. Yet the Biden administration wants to dodge that precedent by claiming that uh, resistance to unions is a uh, material factor in companies' fitness. The report says union shops are favorable because collective bargaining agreements promote stability and minimize disruption of services and goods procured. Never mind that the explicit goal of the proposal is increasing worker organizing. The administration wants you to believe unionized firms are always the best contractors. Truckers are winning. More Canadian provinces abandoned mandates. The story notes Quebec, Alberta, Saskatchewan and Prince Edward Island provinces have all announced plans to eliminate or roll back some or all measures. And now there's reason to believe a similar convoy may start here in the United States. Well, Salem's Larry Elder landed the cover of Newsweek magazine as part of a key group of black conservatives. The story notes a decade-long effort to broaden the appeal of the GOP is finally bearing fruit and could play a pivotal role in determining the outcome of the upcoming midterm elections. The media and the left are working to um, stigmatize the pedophilia. Now, let's make it clear that we're talking about a fringe of the uh, the media and the left. And when you recognize what they did for the trans community in such a short time, you can imagine they see a path to victory. From the story, the uh, media has played an important role in both mainstreaming the sexualization of children and in promoting the idea that pedophilia is a sexual orientation, not a behavior. USA Today came under fire for citing experts who called pedophilia a misunderstood condition and argued that not all pedophiles harm children in a January 10th article and since deleted Twitter thread. 
Well, Axios is concerned that the courts are stopping Biden executive orders and to the uh, media. That means climate change legislation via executive order is lost. You might uh, remember when they uh, hated Trump for doing just the same thing. A female college athlete says a male swimmer is taking rights away from women. Track and field competitor Chelsea Mitchell knows she was the one who lost to a male track athlete who did the same in high school. Convoy protests in New Zealand have led to arrests there. Similar to the convoy protest in Canada, vaccine mandates are at the center. Police called in more than 100 extra officers from other parts of the country. Still, police seemed prepared to wait it out as officers formed a line and ordered people to leave but didn't advance on them, arresting mainly those who appeared to be unruly. Police wore protective vests but didn't don riot gear or carry guns. Canada, New Zealand, possibly the United States. Inflation hit a 40-year high of 7.5%. The U.S. Consumer Price Index, which measures cost of living, jumped 7.5% over last year. The inflation rate has uh, not been this high since February of 1982. One of the biggest inflation contributors has been vehicle prices. New and used are up 12.5.2 and 40.5% respectively over the last year. Other leading contributors have been food up 7% over 12 months and energy up 27%. Furthermore, January's 0.7% wage growth has been rendered nearly flat, with inflation rising at 0.6% over the month. The probability of a significant interest rate hike now looks inevitable. The House GOP has introduced sanctions against um, Xi and other Chinese Communist Party officials, House Republicans have introduced a bill titled the Stop CCP, the Chinese Communist Party Act, that would impose severe sanctions against every member of the Chinese Communist Party's National Congress, the country's highest governing body, including Chinese Director Xi Jinping. The sanctions would also be applied to immediate family members, such as Xi's daughter, who attended Harvard University in the past. The sanctions would prevent these individuals from being granted travel visas to the United States, as well as blocking their access to certain financial assets. Congresswoman Lisa McLean, a Republican out of Missouri, the bill's author, explained China is one of the biggest threats to the safety and security of the United States and the world. Sanctioning leaders of the CCP is a common sense way to slow China and the world that or rather to show them that uh, we are sick and tired of their aggressive bully like tactics hmm. in the annals of hypocrisy. The president's recent uh, recently departed science advisor, Eric Lander, who resigned following allegations of bullying White House staff, made quite the pile of cash after he sold his stock in BioNTech. He awaited until August 5th, less than three weeks before Pfizer, BioNTech's partner, got FDA authorization for its covid vaccine to unload his BioNTech stock two days prior to his sell off. BioNTech's shares jumped over $50 in value, allowing Lander to rake in a million dollars. Lander had been a heavy promoter of the vaccines. Meanwhile, another Democrat, Senator Richard Blumenthal, engaged in similar unsavory actions. Last year, while he was calling for an investigation into GameStop, he and his wife bought and sold shares in the trading app Robinhood. Blumenthal apparently failed to disclose his stock trades within the 45 days required by federal law as it wasn't until 56 days after selling between $265,000 and $555,000 in shares that 
it was made known. Jen Psaki, fact checkers have been busted for lying about distributing crack pipes to drug users. Now, it's not clear to me which version of the story is true. We'll continue to follow it. Are there crack pipes or not? Jen Psaki says no. Some others are saying yes. We'll uh, again follow the story. The Biden administration removed lawful immigration, protecting Americans, uh, both phrases from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services mission statement. And we've learned that Team Biden assisted the military's Kabul evacuation plan. ICE deportations were down 70 percent last year. And Joe Rogan turns down a one hundred million dollar rumble offer saying Spotify has hung in with me. And is Trump in in trouble, rather, over document handling? Well, he might be. The National Archives and Records Administration has asked the Justice Department to examine the former president's handling of White House records. We'll continue to follow that story as well. Just one more thing to add to the troubles following Donald Trump as he contemplates or maybe plans to run for re-election. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. A reminder, you can win $1,000 in our Cash for Couples contest. Go to KPDQ for all the important details. You have until February 28th to enter, and you can do so every day between now and then. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we'll talk with Tony Ranke. He's the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life, a fascinating theology of technology that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also, we'll uh, look at why Bible Gateway has removed the Passion Translation from its offerings. Rather interesting uh, consideration of the difference between a paraphrase and a translation. Also want to remind you that February, of course, being the month in which Valentine's Day falls, all things love, we are giving away $1,000 cash for one couple in our promotion. It's the couples con- Cash for Couples contest. Let's get that right. You can plan a weekend away, a special night out, or a gift you've been saving up for. Go to kpdq.com today. Click on Cash for Couples to enter. You can do that every day between now and the 28th of this month and if you share the contest on your social media and um, some of your folks sign up and do the same you can earn 10 bonus entries making you more likely to uh, to win anyway cash for couples contest a thousand dollars to help you celebrate in a very big way kpdq.com for all the important details well on this day in history 1840 britain's queen victoria marries prince albert of saxe coburg and gotha 1936, Nazi Germany's Reichstag passes a law investing uh, the the Gestapo secret police with absolute authority, exempt from any legal review. Imagine that. 1962, the Soviet Union exchanges captured American U-2 pilot Francis Gary Powers for Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy held in the United States. 1967, the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution dealing with presidential disability and succession is ratified as Minnesota and Nevada adopt it. 1968, U.S. figure skater Peggy Fleming, 19, wins America's only gold medal in the Winter Olympic Games in uh, Grenoble, France in the ladies' singles event. 1992, Roots author Alex Haley dies in Seattle at age 70. 2004, the White House trying to end doubts about President George W. Bush's Vietnam-era military service, releases documents it says proves he met his requirements in the Texas Air National Guard. 
2009, the Senate approves President Barack Obama's giant economic stimulus. And also in 2009, on this day in history, U.S. and Russian communication satellites collide in the first ever crash of its kind in orbit, shooting out a a pair of massive debris clouds. Let's hope there's not a clash in the near future between the United States and Russia with regard to Ukraine. Well, the White House said on Wednesday that a $30 million federally funded harm reduction program to distribute safe smoking kits does not include crack pipes and never did. Well, as previously reported, the Washington Free Beacon reported that an HHS spokesman said the safe smoking kits will provide pipes for users to smoke crack cocaine, crystal methamphetamine and any illicit substance, end quote. However, the Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becara and Office of National Drug Control Policy Director Dr. Raul Gupta, they released a statement Wednesday contradicting that HHS and ONDCP is uh, are focusing on using our resources smartly to reduce harm and save lives. Accordingly, no federal funding will be used directly or through subsequent reimbursement of grantees to put pipes in safe smoking kits. The goal of harm reduction is to save lives, the statement read. Well, the administration is focused on a comprehensive strategy to stop the spread of drugs and curb addiction, including prioritizing the use of proven harm reduction strategies like providing naloxone, fentanyl test strips and clean syringes, as well as taking Uh, decisive actions to go after violent criminals who are tracking illicit drugs like fentanyl across our borders and into our communities. We'll continue working to address the addition and overdose um, epidemic and ensure that our resources are used in the smartest and most efficient manner, the statement uh, read. Well, White House correspondent Jackie Heinrich asked the White House press secretary Jen Psaki whether crack pipes were ever part of the kit or if they were removed as a result of the backlash. Um, Heinrich asked HHS just put out a statement clarifying around some reports that crack pipes are not part of the safe smoking kits that are funded by the administration. But can be can you clarify for us? Were they um, ever a part of the kit or were they removed in response to this pushback? They're called uh, safe smoking kits and members of the program had indicated that they were part of those smoking kits. Saki responded they were never part of the kit. It was inaccurate reporting and we wanted to put the information out to make that clear. Heinrich um, re- responded, what is in the safe smoking kit? And Saki responded, so the safe smoking kit may contain alcohol swabs, lip balm, other materials to promote hygiene and reduce the transmission of disease like HIV and hepatitis. I would note that what we're really talking about here is steps that we're taking as a federal government to address the opioid epidemic, which is killing tens of thousands, if not more Americans every single day, week, month of the year. We put out this statement, though, because there was inaccurate information out there, or I should say HHS put out the statement because there was inaccurate information out there. And we wanted to provide clarification on the allowable uses for the HHS harms reduction program not a change of policy. This program, though, is focused on harm reduction strategies, including prioritizing the use of fentanyl test strips and clean syringes. All of these harm reduction services that will be supported by these programs are intended to save lives from an epidemic that we know is devastating to communities across the country. 
Well, Heinrich then went on to ask, and then so just to put a final point at it, does the administration support any effort to distribute drug paraphernalia like the types that we were hearing about? And Jen Psaki responded, the statement makes clear that we don't support federal funding direct or indirect for pipes. Heinrich said, and then on the safe injection sites that the DOJ is evaluating, was this an ask from the White House that they receive, uh, that they review the policy? Because I know that for years, DOJ has opposed efforts to open safe injection sites. Saki responded, it's under litigation, so I can't speak to that. But what I can tell you and reiterate is that the White House is committed, as I will, as I would reiterate to you, many Democrats and Republicans, including Senator Cruz, to taking steps to address the opioid crisis. This is not an issue that is inflicting just blue states. It's inflicting millions of Americans across the country, and it's important that we take steps to address it. Then Heyrich went on. So just final wrap for those two items. What would you say to critics who are concerned that the Biden administration is somehow encouraging illegal drug use? And Saki's final response, I think that it's important to step back and remember, just to put a little more of a fine point on it, that we are losing an American life every five minutes to overdose. We don't have time for political games. The president is focused on saving lives through harm reduction programs. That's exactly what we're talking about here. They work in red states and they work in blue states. We know they save lives. They help connect people to treatment and recovery. And they were endorsed this week by a bipartisan commission co-chaired by Senator Tom Cotton that examines steps we must take to address the devastating toll of overdose uh, overdoses. Uh, so I would suggest maybe they um, they rename the the kits. Apparently, the harm reduction safe smoking kits is a bad uh, a bad title for a kit that does not inf- include anything that allows the recipients to smoke uh, any drug of any kind. So I appreciate the clarification. Well, President Putin holds two good cards: force and energy when it comes to. Uh, Ukraine, And some are suggesting that Ukraine, the crisis could become a disaster for Russia. We're not hearing much of that perspective. Moscow, Beijing and the Islamists all want the same thing, a disbanded transatlantic community and a weakened, disorganized, vulnerable Europe. Regardless of how Ukraine plays out, we have seen again Putin's two most potent weapons for messing with the West force and energy. Well, Russian President um, Putin is like a compulsive poker player who can't stop testing his luck. Every time he gets a good card, he can't help but raise the bet. This is what he's doing in threatening Ukraine, and he may wind up overbetting his hand and losing badly. Now, this is the first analysis I've heard or read in which the downside for Russia is being emphasized. Putin holds two good cards, as mentioned, force and energy. If the transatlantic community commits to strengthening its deterrent forces, strategic as well as conventional and building real energy security that allows Europe access to affordable and reliable energy, Putin will be left with a losing hand. Confrontation and crisis may be averted. On the other hand, how likely is it? How likely is it that the transatlantic community will commit to strengthening its deterrent forces, uh, strategic as well as conventional, and building real energy security that allows Europe access to affordable and reliable energy? It doesn't seem, at least at this point, very likely. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with Tony Ranke, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. He's developed something of a... Theology of technology that I found fascinating, and I think you might as well. 
We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll talk with Tony Renke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's sort of a theology of technology. He'll be joining us uh, in the next couple of segments, so stick around for that. We're also going to talk about Bible Gateway. They have removed the Passion Translation uh, from their stock, if you will. We'll tell you more about that and what the controversy around that particular version of the Bible, uh, what it is. Well, U.S. inflation jumped 7.5% in the past year, a 40-year high. That's what the Associated Press uh, blared in its headline this morning. That's pretty terrible news, and it confirms what every American, but particularly lower and middle class folks, have experienced over the um, first year of the president's administration. Everything is much more expensive, so that must mean it's time for what Mark Alexander declared three weeks ago was just ahead Biden's big COVID pivot. And we're starting to see that very thing happen. There is a midterm election to win. That's coming up in November, after all. And Democrats need to create a new narrative of having finally defeated COVID under the steady leadership of Joe Biden and his party. In fact, many talking heads appear just today making that point. That, not um, any devotion to science, is why several Democrat governors have finally yielded on mask mandates. And we're not just talking about the pariah Republicans, but now some Democrats who have yielded as well. First, it was Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. No, wait, he's a Republican. So lifting mask mandates was bad when he did it three weeks ago. Well, over the last few days, though, Youngkin was joined by Phil Murphy of New Jersey and Ned Lamont of Connecticut, along with John Carney of Delaware, J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, Kate Brown of Oregon, although we're not quite there yet, and Gavin Newsom of California. The difference is that they're all Democrats, so lifting restrictions is a great idea. Announcing an end to mask mandates in these states is driven by science, not politics. At least that's what the media on the left informs us and shows that uh, bold Democrat statesmen are leading the way back to normal. Well, even New York Governor Kathy uh, Kathy Hochul is lifting the mask or vaccine mandate for businesses in the state effective today. She's not really following the science, mind you, but she's still uh, um, leaving in place the requirement that even young kids wear masks in school. Now, the interesting thing is it should be just the opposite. Kids are far less likely to contract COVID from one another than adults. So if you're going to leave the mask mandate in place, you think you'd lift it for kids and Leave it in place for business, but that's not the case. Uh, she's still leaving in place the requirement that even young kids wear masks in school, but they, it's still a pivot, um, uh, it's still a pivot for one of the most dogmatic of the branch, uh, Covidians, as one, um, writer put it, Nate Jackson. Here are a few examples of other Democrats who are touting the election pivot. Um, we all knew was coming. Under President Biden's leadership, a public health infrastructure was put into place to ensure that we can do everything possible to crush the virus. And that is what we have uh, been happening. That is what has been happening. That's Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, a pivot. Democrats plan to fight covid is working. Cases are down and vaccines are widely available. Now it's time to give people their lives back with science as our guide. We're ready to start getting back to normal. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney. Uh, With a rapid decline of Omicron, pandemic restrictions will be lifted sooner rather than later. And considering when to do so, health officials must factor in natural immunity, not just vaccination rates. 
That's a quote from Congressman Ted Lieu, a pivot. Well, notice the nod to natural immunity, which some of us uh, have been talking about for, well, two years, uh, but was discredited by the media. Well, left media talking heads likewise got the memo. Uh, the, Associ- the Atlantic declared open everything. Their writer, uh, Yasha Monk, uh, was once a vocal proponent of shutting everything down and says, I remain convinced that this was the right thing to do. But now, with Democrats facing dismal election prospects, we're in danger of prolonging the status quo more than is justifiable if we don't reopen. End quote. Well, CNN's medical analyst, uh, Dr. Leanna Wen, has suddenly rediscovered individual liberty, saying of governors lifting max, uh, mask mandates. And of course, these aren't the Republican governors who preceded the Democrats who are now pivoting. She says this is the right step and marks a needed shift from government imposed requirements to individual decisions. It helps to preserve public health authority for when it's needed again. End quote. Well, that list, um, that last bit rather. Gives the game away. Commentator Bill Whittle hit the nail on the head. Prior to this change in opinion about the masks, they said everybody must wear masks in order to gain more power. Now they're saying it's probably okay if you don't wear masks in order to gain more power. They're now switching their positions so they have a chance of being reelected so that they can tell people what to do in the future. That's the reason why the science has changed. That's in quotes. Well, this isn't about science or data. In fact, death rates are higher in many of these states than when governors issued the mask mandate. It's about politics, plain and simple. It was always about politics, which is revealed in part because the experts used to be pretty unified in saying that masks are not very useful for containing viral outbreaks. That was until Democrat politicians needed to show they were doing something. Well, now it's time for them to show that they're done. Uh, they've actually done something and saving you from the virus. Reopening is the right move, but Democrats are almost two years late to the game. That doesn't rec- uh, recommend them for election this fall, but they're giving it a good go. Anyway, the pivot has uh, begun and the narrative, although the science hasn't changed, certainly has. Hmm. In fact, uh, Laura Hollis writes, Dr. Leanna Wynn, who appears on CNN frequently as a medical analyst, got tongues wagging earlier this week when she was asked by CNN anchor John Berman whether she supported the lifting of mask mandates across the country. I do, Wynn said. The science has changed. She continued, we know that vaccines protect every well um, very well against Omicron, which is the dominant variant. She also announced she supported uh, her support, rather, for what she called one-way masking. We also know that even if other people around you aren't wearing masks, if you wear a high-quality mask, that also protects you. If you followed when throughout the pandemic, those comments likely come as something of a surprise. The biggest head-turner might well be her blithe statement that the science has changed. When frontline doctors and others question the official narrative about anything COVID, the origin of the virus, the effectiveness of drugs like ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine, the safety and efficacy of the vaccines, when was on the bandwagon insisting that the science is settled, even as the official narrative about the pandemic changed almost daily. Those who dared to continue to voice their views or ask their questions were denounced as cracks spewing misinformation. They were censored and silenced by social media companies. The ongoing brouhaha over Joe Rogan's podcast on Spotify is proof that even as the official narrative changes, only those officials approve 
approved to carry the new message will be permitted to say it. Well, Wynn's statement about the vaccine's protection against the Omicron variant of COVID-19 are also inscrutable. According to a studies published last December, the current available vaccines are not as effective against the Omicron variant as they had been against earlier versions of the virus. The CEO of Pfizer admitted in January in an interview that two doses of his company's mRNA vaccines were not enough for Omicron and that the variant was a more difficult target than earlier versions of the virus. When went further, she opined that with respect to the decision of whether to wear a mask, the responsibility should shift from a government mandate to an individual responsibility by the family. When um, Berman challenged her with data about large numbers of cases in New Jersey, she pushed back, stating, I don't think we should be uh, uh, looking at case counts at all at this point. She emphasized the mildness of the Omicron variant and even equated the protection afforded by the vaccine with the natural immunities provided by having contracted the virus. She concluded by saying that the first mask restrictions that should be lifted are those for children. There actually is a harm that we should be discussing of children continuing to mask. We should be intellectually honest and say that masking has had a cost, especially for the youngest learners. There are remarkable turnarounds. Uh, Last summer, when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lifted mask mandates for fully vaccinated people, her position was quite different. We don't trust the honor system, she said. The unvaccinated are now putting the vaccinated at risk. She insisted that everyone needed to wear a mask to protect themselves and others. And she maintained masks can uh, get hot and uncomfortable, but there is no uh, health effect to wearing them. But there's no health effect to wearing them, she went on to say. Owen also argued in very strong terms that the Biden administration should mandate taking the vaccines and should make life more difficult for those who choose to remain unvaccinated by taking their freedoms away. What she says now, millions of Americans have been saying for months, if not longer. It isn't the science that's changed here. It's the political calculus. We're moving into the third year of the pandemic and its restrictions. Americans are fed up and they no longer believe the media's constant fear mongering. In a Rasmussen poll taken last month, half of those polls said that they believe that the risks of the virus are being exaggerated all across the country people want to end the covid restrictions parents are demanding that their children attend schools without face coverings businesses want to open without asking for vaccine passports and it's uh, not just americans the truckers freedom convoy in canada of course is another case in point well very interesting to observe the pivot that's taking place and the political calculus that goes along with it and that's of course what politicians do even when they're medical in their profession you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. The book is published by Crossway. It's something of a theology of technology. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, from smartphones to self-driving cars to space travel, new technologies can inspire us. But the breakneck pace of change can also frighten us. So how do Christians walk by faith through the innovations of Silicon Valley? And how does God relate to our most powerful innovators? Well, to build a biblical theology of technology, journalist and tech optimist Tony Ranke, he examines nine key texts from Scripture to show how the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. 
Ultimately, what we believe about God determines how we respond to human invention. And with the help of several theologians and inventors throughout history, he dispels 12 common myths in the church and offers 14 ethical convictions to help Christians live by faith in an age of big tech. Well, my guest is Tony Ranke. He is a journalist. He serves as senior teacher and host of the Ask Pastor John podcast for DesiringGod.org. He's the author of Lit, A Christian Guide to Reading Books, Competing Spectacles, and 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And that's one worth reading. The book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is published by Crossway. He joins us by phone. And uh, welcome. I'm delighted to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, this is so fascinating. I think if you were to ask the man on the street what the Bible has to say about technology and innovation, we might scratch, he might scratch his head and wonder, <laughs> is there any reference at all? And yet, um, your book points out that yes, there is in scripture a guide for us, um, in the 21st century as we consider technology and how influential it has become and how we ought to uh, view that. You um, decided to write a theology of technology. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah, it's basically you know, for a century or so now, the church's theologians have told us that faith and technology really don't belong in the same conversation. Uh, you know, human innovation is Babel-like, it's worldly, it's wicked, it's tainted top to bottom, and it's only destructive. You know, at least that's the sense that a lot of us have gotten. And so whenever you speak of human tech, you know, leave God out of the conversation. And that's largely what Christians have done. And now we live in, inside the, you know, the, the most technologically advanced uh, society the world has ever seen, and many Christians work inside major tech centers. And uh, now the church is not surprisingly mute. We don't know what to say now in this age. And uh, for myself and for a, a growing number of younger Christians, we're asking the question of, of maybe we got something wrong here. Maybe something got lost along the way. And so uh, what I'm trying to do is go back to the Bible, go back to Genesis to Revelation and, and get a better sense of, of what is God's relationship to human innovation and flourishing. Um, and there's a lot of cues that we find in the text. Well, I appreciate, um, you know, you're using the word um, innovation because when we think about uh, technology in the 21st century, we're talking, we're thinking about electronics for the most part. We yeah, don't remember right. what came before it that were innovations in their time that may have raised questions at that time. Um, you offer some key texts from scripture that gives us some insight, not only into what the word says, but God's thinking and heart with regard to man's innovation. I think we begin probably at the Tower of Babel and sometimes think, well, that innovation kind of tells us all we need to know about future innovations in our time and back then. Is that sufficient? Well, no, it's definitely not. And uh, we have to go back before that to like page two or three of our Bibles into Genesis chapter four. And we need to trace out Cain's lineage. Why did God protect Cain's life when he is so worthy of being executed for the murder of his brother? Uh, and in the text, you have to be patient with the text and let it flow out of, uh, of, of what it says, because what we find out is that God is going to preserve Cain's life because Cain's great-great-grandchildren are going to initiate three massive industries, the industry of cattle breeding, what we may think of today as rudimentary genetics uh, and professional music, and metallurgy, the making of metal tools and weapons, all made possible by God's protective mercies over Cain's lineage. Cain is like the, the non-believer in the early part of the Bible. He's the, he's the rebel. He's the sinner. He's the, he's the non, non-Jewish. He's just not, he has no faith. I mean, he does not trust in God. He's a rebel. And God chooses this man 
uh, to bring about the first three major industries in world history. And that's before the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel comes along and humans use technology. Big bricks are a new technology. It's something that man discovered, man invented, and man used that to try to idolize himself, try to um, glorify humanity in building a tower in a city. And that was sinful. That was wrong. That was against God's word. And so God breaks into that story. He hacks the whole thing so that we don't only have one city, but that we have tens of thousands of cities now. And so that's, uh, that's one way that he breaks in. But it keeps going on from there. I mean, it goes on to, you know, David and Goliath are two, two guys that go toe-to-toe. They're two technologists. Uh, Goliath, of course, has his own technology, and David chooses a sling, which is another technology. It's a, it's a way to amplify human power. He's going to amplify the power of his arm into a sling, and he's going to basically play the role of a sniper. Uh, he be, he, he's the superior technologist in a one-on-one type of a battle. And so, th- I mean, that, those are just the early chapters of the Bible. And then you get into Job and the Psalms and Isaiah and uh, then the New Testament and Revelation 18 and Babylon. I mean, the, the story is so expansive on what we can learn about God's relationship to human innovation. It, it truly is uh, unspeakable. Well, I appreciate that you you uh, force us to think differently about those innovations because they're primitive. We don't often credit them for yes. what they were at the time. And I love the, what you say about God determining how we um, No, That's not what I'm thinking. It's um, uh, the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. We don't think about yeah. God's hand at work in permitting and even in inspiring these innovations that we have all benefited by and benefit yeah. today. Yeah, and this is why I think in the last 100 years that was lost. But before that, it was it was in the uh, Reformed theologians of the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, even up to Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, who uh, developed this idea of common grace. Uh, a guy like John Calvin went so far as to say the same Holy Spirit that regenerates believers is the same Holy Spirit bringing about human innovation for human flourishing. Now, that to us, that will strike us as crazy talk uh, to speak in that kind of a strong language. But that's how a guy, a reformer like John Calvin was already talking about uh, common grace uh, back in his age. And Abraham Kuyper develops that out. But then by the time you get into World War One and World War Two, that common grace language really recedes in the background. And the church really struggles to talk about common grace, especially when we have these new powers of destruction. Right. So we, once you get into the world wars, now when you talk about human, human innovation, we're talking about being able to kill at scale. Mm-hmm. And so it just becomes a more complex conversation when you have a nuclear bomb. Um, and so I can see why the conversation kind of fell off the table. But it, the, that, that conversation over common grace is in Scripture and it should still be in the church today. You describe yourself as a tech optimist. Uh, what are some of the myths about technology that we as believers often embrace? Well, I mean, the, the myth that stands out to me is the one that uh, human innovation is somehow an inorganic sort of imposition that we've pressed on to creation. It's sort of like we, we sort of force creation to give us an iPhone or we force creation to give us nuclear power or we force creation to give us social media or we force creation to give us um, gasoline or we, you know, we, for, we somehow bring this will of ours into creation and sort of invent things out of, out of nothing, out of scratch. And that's just not how it works. And what I showed throughout the book is that God has actually put in place nine different limiters on what we can invent. 
in, in fact, we can do very few things. <laughs> for, a, for a finite mind like us, it seems like it's infinite. It seems like we can do anything we want. But to an infinite God, what we can actually do with his creation is heavily limited. It's highly channeled. Um, ask anyone who's tried to start a, a startup in Silicon Valley or someone who owns a, uh, a patent of how, how hard it is to actually make money on a startup idea or a patent. Very few people can do it. Very few people actually make money off a startup, off of a patent, because there are so many factors involved in limiting what we can actually produce and make. And that's one of the arguments that I make. I think there's nine limiters that we see in Scripture where we don't have this sort of unlimited palette to do whatever we want. It's highly constrained by God. Well, and I think that's part of the fear that we often have is that there is no restraint, that if given enough time and given the appropriate um, resources, that we can do anything. And that is kind of a frightening yeah. thought to many. But as you point out, the scripture makes it clear that is not the case. The sovereignty of God doesn't somehow uh, stand apart from and aside from uh, technological advances. That's exactly right. And we see this in Isaiah 28 when God is telling us how farmers learn how to use tools, how to make tools, and then use those tools to actually bring about a crop and to bring about grain that will be turned into bread. Um, the tools are actually coded into the created orders. And we see that in Isaiah 28. So it's as if the creator is teaching the farmer how to farm. I mean, it's so direct. The language is so direct. And God is teaching farmers all across the world how to do farming because they're in this um, dialogue with creation and what creation makes possible. And then you get into Isaiah 54. Now we're into the most scary tech, the most scary, uh, most powerful war tech in the world, in the hands of the people you don't want it in the hands of. Isaiah 54, God says, I am governing it. I'm there. I'm not gone. Don't buy into the godless dystopian vision of the world that the world may have. I'm there, even in the most powerful technologies being used for destructive purposes, God is there. And of course, you know, in Acts chapter 2, when we, when we see the apostles interpreting the, the crucifixion of Christ by nails, by this metallurgy, by this technology uh, that the Romans had, um, God is orchestrating even the crucifixion of his son by the use of this technology. And so we see even in the greatest expression of evil humanity has ever devised, and we see it in, uh, in, in Babel as well, which is another um, expression of, of uh, sinful man, God is there. He hasn't left us. He's not gone. He's not an absentee creator. Um, and he's going to turn those things for good, and he's going to sovereignly orchestrate them. And I think that's sort of a vision of technology that gets lost when we get mm -hmm. scared of mm -hmm. Elon Musk, scared of Silicon Valley, scared of what's next. Now, there are scary things, and we need to be aware. We don't need to be naive about how things uh, influence us, but we do need the confidence to know that God is there. He hasn't left us. Amen. We're talking uh, this afternoon with Tony Ranke. He is the author of a fascinating book that I would recommend, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Tony Ranke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's really a fascinating 
uh, book that reminds us that technology just uh, doesn't just involve electricity in the 20th century. Uh, it really began at the very beginning. And as we see uh, God's sovereignty in play, it helps us to perhaps think differently about the technology that we live with in the 21st century, much of which can be rather troubling when it's misused. Now, how should Christians think about technological advancements, particularly when the innovators' motives are not consistent with uh, human flourishing? Yeah, that's a great question. There are, you know, worrisome innovations, and that's what we get, you know, when, when humans are able to invent and, and, and do so sensibly that we're going to create things that are destructive. We're going to, you know, create things that are self-destructive. And that's just a part of the reality of the, the life in the fallen uh, world that we, we live in. We seek to honor God in all ways. Um, but that's not true of all people. And so there are a lot of worrisome technologies. When you, you think of like uh, artificial intelligence, I think is the big one that mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about. And we need to talk about things like that. And, you know, social media, um, isn't that destroying the social fabric of the democracy? I mean, that's a big question that the church needs to address. And isn't the metaverse, this new, this new privatized surveillance state, isn't that a problem? And uh, isn't Amazon you know, growing into a monopoly and killing uh, the uh, market balance that we need for pricing? Um, aren't robots and AI going to take over all of our jobs? Will we survive in the workforce in the future if we don't have some sort of a computer interface with our brains? Um, you know, there's so many scary things. Like the heart of a genetically modified pig was just recently yes. transplanted into a man. Did you see that? Yes. <laughs> it's incredible, you know. And so the immediacy of hot headlines these really drive the tech conversation in Christians. And these are big and important questions, all of them. Uh, but it, they also make it nearly impossible for us to build out a robust theology of technology because the immediacy of these concerning things just limit our minds to a very, you know, man-centric approach to the world. You know, look at this one scary tech. What do you think of it? And uh, very quickly you realize that just God is left outside the conversation. He's a non-factor. I think that's really what I'm going after with this book is the significance of being able to step back from the headlines and actually ask, okay, what's missing in our theology? What needs to be built back into how we think of the world uh, in order for us to eventually address those immediate concerns in faith and with an informed understanding of, of what the Bible teaches us? And that's what I'm trying to do in this book is, is I do sprinkle in some of the immediate questions, but more importantly, I study sort of the greatest technological revolution uh, the world has, has seen before ours, uh, roughly 1860 to 1913, mm-hmm. you know, between sort of the Civil War and World War One, um, And it's just incredible to see medical technology and vaccines and uh, transportation and electronic media began and photography and video and airplanes took off. And uh, it's just incredible to look at that age. And so I think sometimes it's helpful to just get out of our age and to go back into mm-hmm. an earlier age and see what God gave us, uh, because we feel less threatened, I think, by those technologies, even though there were huge debates in the church. Uh, you know, the lightning rod is one that, you know, uh, is most interesting to me. In 1750, when Ben Franklin was, uh, you know, inventing the, the lightning rod, I and mean, he got a lot of pushback. Um, you know, you're stealing God's thunder. You're taking away his means of chastening us. Um, and uh, it was a really fascinating era to be a Christian because um, the fear was Ben Franklin's rod would just supercharge earthquakes in the future. And in fact, uh, not long after Ben Franklin started using the lightning rod, there was an earthquake in New England. And people said, aha, see, 
you just diverted God's um, God's wrath into the ground, and now you've supercharged the earthquakes of the future. And so those kind of debates in the church, we may look at those a little bit humorously now uh, at, the, at what splits church, but what we have to realize is we're in the middle of like an unfolding tech tree. You know, technology is always developing. Um, things came before, and things are going to come after, and we're in the middle. We're in like a research and development lab. It's the world that we live in, you know, and there's new technologies being made that have to be adopted um, and some that aren't going to help us flourish and some that will. And we're trying to figure that out. You know, how do you respond to a global pandemic? Is this vaccine the right one? Maybe not. Probably something much better is going to come in the future. Like, how do you do that? We're in the midst of this um, research and development, which is one of the things that I think a lot of Christians don't realize. I mean, we're not trying to pronounce final judgments on all these technologies we have today. We're seeing, okay, they're developing. uh, They can be gifts. They can be a curse, but they can be gifts as well. And we're trying to work, work them out in real time. And it's, it's, it's complicated, um, but it's, it's never done apart from God's sovereign orchestration. Mm, which is the most important thing to remember in the midst of yeah. that whirlwind. You offer um, some common myths uh, and you dispel some common myths in the church with regard to technology. But you also offer, and I really appreciated this, um, ethical convictions to help Christians live by faith in an age of big tech. And I think we desperately... Uh, need that we we are overwhelmed by not only the present technology but where it's going and what's what lays ahead can you talk a little bit about the and you offer 14 of them but ethical convictions to help us live by faith in this age that um, can seem overwhelming yeah absolutely there's a lot to say um yeah i think the critiques the critiques the critiques of christians um uh by atheists say you know christians don't have anything to say in the tech age because the bible doesn't talk about genetics the bible doesn't talk about artificial intelligence the bible doesn't talk about robots and therefore the bible is irrelevant for the tech age and uh, so a lot of that section which is the last chapter of the book is pushed back against that whole idea uh, that somehow the, the bible is irrelevant is relevant because what technology does is it simply raises old um, uh, old ethical dilemmas, like what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to flourish as a human? What does it mean to have uh, to not exploit the poor, the poor? What does it mean to kill an enemy in war? What does it mean to um, care for those who are humans at conception? What does it mean to be a woman and not a man? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to be a member in a local church. What about personal privacy and religious freedoms? All of those things are sort of perennial issues that come up over and over and over as the technologies uh, change over time. They're perennial questions, and the Bible addresses all of those. And so basically in those 14, um, just to sort of speak broadly about those mm-hmm. 14 points, is what I'm trying to show is the Bible is relevant, super relevant for the digital age in, in, in these 14 ways. And it's really an extension of what I was doing in 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, my earlier book on specifically on digital media, is just showing like all the dilemmas that we we face when it comes to you know Instagram and spending too much time on TikTok or Snapchat, whatever the, the medium is, is just raising like Jesus's commands back into the forefront of our minds. Like, uh, what does it mean to flourish? It means listening to the Savior, listening to what he says about distractions, listening to him about what it means to love our neighbor, love our God. Like, these questions just come up over and over again. Um, They're just cyclical in kind of an ecclesiastical kind of a way. Um, And they're they're so relevant because they're just the perennial questions. Yeah, yeah. 
You write in the book that a total tech disengagement is coming. What do you mean by that? It's it's hard to imagine that possibility, yeah. but what do you mean by that? <laughs> what I found when I was writing this book, uh, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is that as I was trying to understand uh, a biblical theology of technology, meaning taking the theme of, of technology and going Genesis to Revelation canonically through the whole Bible, mm-hmm. what I realized at some point in my research was I was just basically doing a biblical theology of the city. That's all I was doing. And so in the, in the biblical storyline, technology and the city are just one storyline woven together. And so what that means is when you get to the end of, of the Bible, when you get to um, uh, Babylon, uh, the city, the biggest, most technologically advanced, most opulent city the world has ever seen in um, Revelation chapter 18, what that means is this apex of technology, this apex of wealth, this apex of comfort is going to be interrupted and judged by God in the end. We know that from, from his word. Babel is the city of all cities. It's the, it's the composite of all our cities. And it, what we read in that text is that God calls his people out of the city before he judges it. And the angels are actually the ones who call God's people out of Babylon before he judges it. And so you can think about this, you know, through rapture language, if that's kind of the, uh, the language that you'd use, or just the tech disengagement, which is kind of how I would talk about it. But there comes a point in time when God's church is going to be called out of the city. We're going to walk away from whatever gadgets we have at that time, whatever houses we have at that time, whatever vehicles we have at that time. We're going we're gonna to step out of the city, and God is going to come down and judge, finally, uh, man's cities, man's epicenter of rebellion. And he's going to put in their place something better, a city that he's designed and he has built and he is going to place in its place. And that's the, the new creation to come that we long for and, and can't wait for. But what that means is that we now have a vision for the technologies in our life, like our computers, our TVs, our smartphones, our microphones, our telephones, our microwaves, our dishwashers, um, the gasoline we burn in our cars that are so techn- technologically advanced, mm-hmm. like all of the things that we have, we will eventually um, turn away from. And that, I think, when we look at, at Revelation 18, it's a, it's a good reminder that one day we are going to be called out of the city, called away from our technologies. And uh, in, in some sense, this is why I admire the Amish and the Mennonites, because they've already done that in, in some sense. Mm-hmm. It, I think they've done that a little bit too early, but, <laughs> but I do admire that they did it, you know, and that they've stepped out of the city and they've stepped out of the technological uh, revolution that we're experiencing. Now, I don't think we have to do it yet, but at some point we will. And um, the angels will make that clear. God will make that clear when that transition is, is to come. But even now, it helps us understand the place of our gadgets and our devices. Yes, we use them to serve God. It's a stewardship. Everything we've been given is a stewardship to, to honor God, to glorify Him, and to serve our neighbor. Uh, but there will be a complete tech disengagement one day when we walk out of our cities. Mm. Well, the book is titled God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's absolutely fascinating. I've never thought about uh, technology and innovation in quite the same way, and certainly not in the context of Scripture. And I would encourage anyone who looks at our age with wonder and <laughs> scratches their head to read the book yeah. because it does help us to recognize the Scriptures have lots to say about the time we're in and how we're connected with the, the history of mankind and innovation. Uh, I want to commend you for the book, and thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it here today. 
It's been my honor, Georgine. Thank you. Oh, by the way, where can our listeners uh, yeah. best find your book? Um, it's uh, it's on Amazon.com, of course, and uh, it can also be purchased for 50% off at Westminster Books Online. Excellent. Westminster Books Online. Yep. Tony Ranke, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. My joy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, really a fascinating uh, book. And to see how scripture is woven throughout human innovation, those things that we have benefited by and those things we regret and fear, uh, all addressed in God, Theology, and the Christian Life, published by Crossway, by the way, if you'd like to pick that up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I so appreciated my guest in the last segment, Tony Ranke, uh, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life, reminding us that the scriptures are relevant to whatever age we happen to be in and whatever technology we are watching emerge or are relying on. Um, and I, uh, I so appreciate that God's word uh, addresses every area of life. His sovereignty oversees every aspect of of human innovation. So I appreciated being reminded of that and then drawn back into the scriptures to better understand God's role in all of this, those technologies that um, we marvel at and those we sh- uh, shiver as a result of. Uh, anyway, thinking of God's word, I wanted to mention that a Bible version designed to, as they put it, the uh, translators, if you will, recapture the emotion of God's word was removed from Bible Gateway last week. I'm referring to the Passion Translation. It's listed as no longer available among the site's 90 English language Bible offerings. And that's pretty significant. It was first released as a New Testament back in 2017. The Passion Translation, it includes additions that don't appear in the source manuscripts, phrases meant to draw out God's tone and his heart, in each passage. So it's not a direct translation, and that's really where the controversy lies. One translator, Brian Simmons, he's a former missionary linguist and pastor who now leads Passion and Fire Ministries, saw the work in Bible translation as part of a divine calling of his, uh, of his life to bring a, the word uh, to uh, to the nations. His translation has been endorsed by a range of apostolic charismatic Christians, including the Calls, uh, Lou Engel, Bethel's Bill Johnson, um, Hillsong's Bobby Houston, the um, Passion Translation publisher, Broad Street Publishing Group, confirmed that Bible Gateway made the disappointing decision to discontinue their license for the Passion Translation as of January of this year. While no explanation was given, Broad Street Publishing accepts that Bible Gateway has the right to make decisions as they see fit with the platforms they manage. That's a quote from Broad Street in a statement. Well, Bible Gateway's parent company, HarperCollins Christian Publishing, told Christianity Today that we periodically review our content, making changes as necessary to align with our business goals, end quote. Well, the company declined to offer any further details about its reasons for that decision, but the translation remains available on Version and Logos Bible software, so it's not completely um, out of reach. Screenshots from uh, Simmons' social media showed him initially responding to the Passion's translation removal by saying cancel culture is alive in the church world and asking followers to request the site restore the version that has since been taken down. He argues that the uh, translation, as he refers to it, some would say paraphrase, other transliteration, uh, the additions and context expand the essential meaning of the original language by highlighting the essence of God's original message. 
with the Passion Translation, we have a high goal of being accurate to the text, but accuracy involves the heart behind it. He said in an interview last month, we're trying to discover, communicate and release God's heart through the word we choose, words we choose. Well, Simmons and his publisher described the uh, translation as a translation instead of a paraphrase because Simmons and his partners worked to develop the text from Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts rather than taking an existing English translation and putting it into his own words. He's repeatedly defended the translation label, saying that all Bible translations involve some paraphrase. And he puts the Passion Translation in the same category as thought-for-thought translations like the New International Version. But Bible scholars, including those who translated the NIV, use a more rigorous standard. A new version has to closely adhere to the wording, the syntax, and structure of its source. And critics say that the Passion Translation says it doesn't, uh, rather say it doesn't meet those standards and functions as a paraphrase while presenting itself as a translation. Now, one might wonder, does it really make that much difference? Well, yeah, it really does. Is it a translation or is it a paraphrase? Is it saying precisely what the scriptures and the original languages say, or does it add to it in order to make it more, uh, to bring more clarity? So it is an important distinction. Those of us who aren't Bible scholars or translators might not appreciate that, but when you're holding God's word, it does matter. Bible scholars, including those who translated NIV, beg to differ. If the uh, Passion Translation removal from Bible Gateway was related to the concerns over its translation claims, and we're not really sure because they haven't elaborated, says Andrew Wilson, a Reformed charismatic who pastors at King's Church in London and a columnist for Christianity Today, I think that's a good thing. There are just too many additions to the text that have no basis in the original, which is fine, sort of, if it's a self-consciously paraphrase, but not if people think it's a translation. So I think describing it, defining it accurately is very important, and maybe that's where the controversy lies. They're not rejecting out of hand this particular paraphrase, if you will, um, but the labeling of it misleading people into thinking it is a translation. Well, he first raised concerns in a 2016 blog post uh, and continues to get asked about the version from fellow charismatics. He wrote that he doesn't recommend it, objects to the publisher's advice to use it from the pulpit and urges leaders to clarify that it's not a translation. Well, all of that to say, as our time is uh, is drawing down, it matters what we're reading. If it's a translation or a paraphrase that we understand what it is um, and study accordingly. Um, anyway, this controversy will continue. As uh, mentioned a few moments ago, uh, the publisher hasn't said specifically why it was withdrawn. Uh, Bible Gateway hasn't said specifically it's because it's mischaracterized as a translation when it should be a paraphrase or the other way around. So we're not certain. And I would hope that that would uh, ultimately be made clear so that people could decide for themselves. But nonetheless, God's word matters. And uh, once again, I appreciated my guest in the previous couple of segments of reminding us of how rich and full and relevant uh, the scriptures are. And we would do well to take them seriously, to study them regularly, and to devote ourselves to following closely what uh, what God says through his word. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us tomorrow when we take a look at the lighter side of the news and we share this week's Christian Outlook. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.